Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And to briefly recap what we were going over last week, last week we were looking at the glory of God in creation, His general revelation. And we saw how the beauty of creation reveals to us that there is a God and points us to Him. But although we do see God in creation, we concluded that we need something more. Creation can give us a general knowledge of God, and what we need is a personal knowledge of God. So in creation we can see that God is real, that He exists. But can we know this God? Can we have a personal relationship with this God? And how can we, if we can have a relationship, how do we go about in having a relationship with Him? And that's what God does for us in His Word. God, through the Bible, shows us that we are sinners, that He is holy, that we need a Savior, and that Jesus Christ is that Savior, and that through Him our sins can be forgiven and we can be adopted into His family. And as we go through this sermon, obviously it is about the Bible. It is about the Word of God. But it's not about just to-dos and not-to-dos. It's so much more than that. Because it leads us to the One who is complete and everlasting joy, Jesus Christ, who is the living Word. So my goal this morning in this sermon is not to pound and to make you feel guilty about reading your Bibles. My goal is to help you see and to treasure your Bible, and therefore you would read it. Not because it's something you need to do, but it's something that we want to do. So let's read these verses together, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, as we come before Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14, there are... Just in reading them, you can, we can see the, the huge and massive truths that are here. Oh, the descriptions that David gives us of your word, they're wonderful. They make the soul sing just reading them. Father, I am very inadequate to stand before your people and preach your word to them. I ask that you would come and that you would help me. You would help me to preach to them, that you would help me to speak with clarity, and I ask that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see, and that their hearts would be rejoicing within them as we go through these verses, as we rejoice in what you have done for us in 
your word. Father, help me to forget myself as we pour over the Bible. It's in Christ's name I ask and pray these things. Amen. Now before we begin to move through verses 7 to 14, I want you to see a couple of things that change as David begins to transition from creation in the first half of the psalm to God's Word in the second half of the psalm. So one thing that changes is the structure of the psalm. What David does is, in these verses is called Hebrew poetic parallelism. That's a mouthful, but just look at uh, verses 7 to 11 with me and I'll show you what he's doing. It's actually not that complicated, even though it kind of sounds like it is. So what that means is, is that in 7 through 11, David has six statements about God's Word. And within these statements, there are three elements, and they all parallel one another. So look at verse 7. He says, law. Okay, David is using that as a term for the written revelation. Then he says, perfect. That's the adjective that describes the word. And then you have reviving the soul. That is the effect that the word has. And then there's six of these that all parallel one another. So that's all that that means. Another thing that changes is the name of God that is used. In the first half of the psalm, we were looking at general revelation. So a general name for God was being used. Now in the second half of the psalm, we come to God's personal revelation. So His personal name is used. And you can see that. You see LORD in all caps. And whenever we see that, LORD in all caps, we know that that is talking about the personal name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus. The name of Yahweh, I Am. So we have God's personal name here. And this is David showing his masterful poetic ability. David, and as I was talking about earlier and just reading through these, you can see that the man, not only is he filled with knowledge about God, but he is filled with joy. And you can see it being poured out on this page. He sings about the Lord. He sings about His Word. So let's go through these, and I pray that you would be singing along with Him. So he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's Word lacks in nothing. And although David is likely talking about mainly the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. This term, perfect, goes for all of the Bible. All of the Bible comes from the mouth of God. It is all perfect. The Bible is perfect and it lacks nothing. So that means that everything that we need to know about God about ourselves, about the world that we live in and how to live in it in everyday life is here within the Bible. Everything that God wants you to understand is here. I want you, I'm going to bring up three passages that really reinforce this truth. And as I read these passages, I want you to be listening to what the Bible says of itself. The first passage I'm going to read from is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. And 
Within this passage, Peter is writing to a Jewish audience, and what he is saying is, as he's recounting the experience that he and the other two disciples, James and John, had when they went on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus transformed before their eyes, this is what he's talking about, and this is what he says to them. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what do we have going on in this passage that Peter is going over? So he has just told this Jewish audience, I was there, I saw Jesus transformed before my eyes, him and two other disciples. Then he says, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now what is he saying? How can you have more confirmation than Jesus transformed before your eyes, right? Now remember, what did Jesus accomplish whenever He came into the world? When Jesus came into the world, He fulfilled what Scripture was already saying about Him. Remember, Jesus was constantly getting on to the Jewish people. He was saying, why do you not believe? This is not new. The Scriptures told you that I was coming. They are about Me. They prophesy, they talk about Me. You should know who I am. And so Peter says, in light of what they saw, Jesus is confirming what the Scriptures have said about Him. And so how much more confirmation do we have in the Bible? There are more writings. So Peter is talking about mainly the Old Testament. That's the Scripture that he had. He's talking about the Old Testament. It was better confirmed about what Jesus did. The New Testament is the completion of the Old Testament and it shows us how to live in light of what Christ has done. So what we have is more confirmed. It is trustworthy. It is perfect in every way. The second passage I want to read to you is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. This is Paul writing. This is towards the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy. And he is encouraging Timothy on how to shepherd God's church. And this is what he says. He writes to Timothy and says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, He tells Timothy the way that you should shepherd God's people, the way that you should go about this is teaching them the Bible. Teaching them 
the Scriptures, unfolding before them what the Scriptures say about God and them. Because it is profitable in every way. Equips the man and the woman of God for every good work. The last passage comes from Matthew 4, verse 4. This is the Lord Jesus Himself speaking. This is whenever He was tempted in the wilderness. And at this point, He has not eaten anything for 40 days. And if you remember, Satan comes to Him and He says, Why is God withholding from you? Command these stones to be bread so that you can eat. If you truly are the Son of God, do these things. And what does Jesus say? He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus Himself had a very high view and understanding of the words of God. So what does this mean for us? Never at any point can you say, I need something more. In order to make it through my day, I need something more than the Bible. The Bible does not tell me who I need to marry. It doesn't tell me where to work. Things like that. So I need something more. That's not true. That's not true. Yes, the Bible doesn't give those specific details. It's not going to tell you when you leave here what you need to eat for lunch, how much you need to pay for that lunch, or if you need to buy somebody else's lunch, or whatever. But Scripture as a whole, as you read it, as you know it, it fills you with knowledge and it fills you with discernment to be able to see and understand all of those things. It also means that if somebody was to come before you and they said, I had this wonderful vision from God, and this is what He said, and they go on to tell you whatever it was, maybe it is go or goes along with the Bible, and I'm not making this laughable, I'm not trying to make fun of people that do that, but if somebody was to come to me and say that, I could say, okay, I read that in my Bible this morning. You can read that in your Bible. Whatever they saw or experienced must be submitted to the Bible. So why would you go off of something and trust something more that must be first submitted to the Bible? That makes no sense. People do this all the time. I mean, obviously they do it on TV. They see special visions, special signs. You know, all mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus. And it is very aggravating because they're, they're really, they're trying to make much of, of God, but really they're making less of Him. The Bible is enough. You don't need special signs. You don't need to go searching for whatever it may be, whether it be signs or new things. A lot of churches try to do that. We need something new. We need something fresh. The Bible is very, very old. And it is, and that's one of the reasons why it is so relevant to us today. Because it does not go along with what the world puts before us. So the Bible is enough. And not only is it enough, not only does it fill us with knowledge, but it reveal, it revives the soul. It revives the soul. Whenever you're hungry or whenever you're thirsty, 
and you have that bite of food or that drink of water or whatever it may be, you feel refreshed, right? It's like, ah, my strength is back. You know, I feel better because I ate something or because I drank something. Well, that's how the Bible is when you read it. Like your body needs physical food, needs water, so your soul hungers for the Word of God. And whenever you feed your soul, it's refreshed. It's revived. The, God's words are reviving, are refreshing to the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Word of God is the firmest foundation you can ever stand on. It will never fail. It is more sure than tomorrow's newspaper. It is more sure than Fox News. It is more sure than CBN or CNN or whatever radio station or news network you listen to. It is more sure. I heard a pastor say once that if there was someone that was locked all of their life in a room and all they had was their Bible and they were to come out and experience the world, they would know more about the world because of the Bible than someone who had all of the world's resources. That is how sure the Bible is. That is the foundation that God has given us to stand on. It makes wise the simple. Like I said a moment ago, it's not, it does fill us with knowledge, but it doesn't merely just make us smart Bible theologians. The goal in reading the Bible is not to leave and then go prove everybody wrong. To go win arguments. To go make people feel dumb or inadequate in their knowledge of the Bible. That's not what the Bible is meant to do. And if that's all that you get in reading your Bible, then you have totally missed the point. It makes the simple wise. And it makes us wise how? Because it makes us like Christ. In reading the Bible, you are sanctified and made more like Him. The Lord Jesus, when He walked on the earth, was the perfect reflection of wisdom. To be wise is to be like Christ. And that is how the Bible makes us wise. We are being transformed day by day by the Word of God in the image of Christ. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now David is not saying in using the word right that the Bible is right versus wrong. Here we have a picture of God's Word being upright. It leads us down the paths of righteousness rather than the paths of sin, the crooked paths of sin. Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. All around us we have world religion telling us, go this way and you find God. Go this way and you can find God. Or heck, go all of those ways and they all lead to God. It doesn't matter which way you go. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible cuts through all of the confusion and it lays the paths of life before our eyes. The path of the Lord is straight. The way of the Lord is right. It rejoices the heart. 
And in being upright, God's Word makes the heart rejoice. It fills the heart with joy. Because in seeing Jesus, you are filled with joy. That's what we see when we read the Bible. We see Christ being put forth in His Word. And that is why we are filled with joy. Now, a couple of warnings need to be given out here at this point. Do you rejoice in your Bibles? Do you delight in reading it? Now, like I said at the beginning, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Because if you feel guilty and you read your Bibles out of guilt, then that's not delighting in it. You're defeating the purpose. The Bible is hard to read. I understand that. Like I said, the book is very old, and we have to do a lot of extra studying because of that. Every morning, whenever you wake up to read your Bible, I don't expect that you have a big, huge smile on your face. Sometimes you probably have a puzzled look. What does this mean? What are you saying, God? I don't get what Paul is saying, or I don't get what Peter is saying, or Moses, or whoever wrote whatever you're reading. But at the end of the day, after you immerse yourself in the Bible, do you rejoice at all? Do you rejoice in what you read, what you see here? If you don't, those are signs that you have not truly tasted Jesus in His Word. And if you do struggle in those ways, which we all do, ask the Lord to help you. Lord, help me to see the treasures of Christ in His Word. That is a prayer He's going to answer. God answers the prayers of His people when they are prayed according to His Word, according to how He wants us to pray. First and foremost, for His glory. So praying to understand His Word is something that He will surely answer. Now, that does not mean that you can pray for that and your Bible sits over there week after week, and the only time you open it is on Sunday morning. It doesn't work like that. You don't ask the Lord to help you read the Bible, and you don't ever open it to read it. You must be reading and praying at the same time. The Lord does not put things on silver platters for His people. That is not what prayer is. God is not a divine waiter. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's Word is mixed, excuse me, unmixed with evil. It is pure. It is undefiled. In Psalm 12, David is comparing the words of God to the words of man. And of the words of man, he says, they are deceitful. They are lies. They cannot be trusted. Who knows what a man is going to say? He says one thing and he turns his back and he says another thing. But then in verse 6, we see the comparison of God's words. And he says, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground seven times. 
And it goes back to the perfection of God's Word that we were talking about. Purified seven times. They're pure. They're undefiled. You can trust the words of God. It enlightens the eyes. Some translation, uh, translations say that they are radiant. God's Word is radiant. Because the Word of God is pure and undefiled, it shows us true reality. So through the lens of the Bible, you see everything how God has intended it to be seen. You see true reality rather than the lies that sin and Satan try to cover your eyes with every day. Constantly, Satan and his demons are attempting to twist and cover things up, blind you from keeping you from seeing the truth. The Bible is not like that. The Bible is pure. It enlightens the eyes. As we sing in Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. Through the lens of the Bible, you see everything how God has intended them to see. Be seen. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Every day, through the Bible, God is lighting a lamp before your feet, showing you the ways in which you should walk, the things in which you should say, the way in which you should live. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's interesting what David does here. He puts our response to the Word in place of what the Word is. Because our response should be one of reverence. We should treat the Bible very seriously. Now that does not mean that because it says the fear of the Lord, you don't open your Bibles trembling and scared because you don't know what God's going to say to you that day. You know, what's God going to tell me to do today? I don't know. I'm kind of scared to look. I, I don't know. That's where the word clean comes in. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's reverence. When you come before the Bible, you treat it seriously. You know the words are true, that God Himself is speaking to you as you read this book. So whenever you read God's Word, do you take the promises of His Word and the warnings of His Word seriously? Or do you just kind of flippantly read along and say, oh yeah, you know, that looks good. Or you come to a warning, it's like, yeah, I probably don't need to do that, but if I do, God's an all-loving God, you know, He's divine teddy bear, He's not going to do anything about it. It's not true. His promises will come true, and His warnings will come true. The promises that God has for His people are sure, and they will happen. You can bet everything on that. And you can also, on the other side of the spectrum, bet everything that the warnings will come true. The people who reject God in His Word will experience all of the judgment that He says that He will do to them. 
That's very serious. Because it will happen one day. And not only should we seriously read the Word in light of that, but we should seriously preach and teach and share the Gospel because of the seriousness of God in His Word. It is enduring forever. The Word will endure forever. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Luke 21, verse 33. This is Jesus Himself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. The Word of God will endure for all eternity. They will never pass away. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now as we come to the second part of verse 9, you can see there's a little bit of a change. David, being the good poet that he is, doesn't keep doing things the same way. He changes it up. So normally, as we've been looking, you have him using a term for the written revelation. Then you have the adjective. Then you have the effect. Well, here, there's a delay. It's called delayed parallelism. And you can see that it's delayed until you get to verse 11. The delay is a comparison. So the words of, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then here's the comparison. Here is the delay. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Is that how you view your Bible? Is that how you feel about your Bible right now as you have it within your hands? You are holding something within your hands. You're able to read it every day. And it is more to be desired than what you want to eat tomorrow? Do you desire it more than your next meal? Do you desire the Bible more than you want a good education? Do you desire the Bible more than you want your work to be successful? Do you desire the Bible more than you want retirement? Do you desire the Bible more than you want to get married? More than your husband, more than your wife, more than your children, more than your family, more than all the riches that you can imagine, all the pleasures that you can experience. Sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. Do you desire the Bible more than anything? More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The words of God are sweet. When understood properly, they come across the palate of the mind, of the heart, of the soul in a delighting way. They are delightful 
to the eyes, delightful to the ears, delightful to the soul. Do you desire God's Word above all else? Now, some of those things that I said are good things. Obviously, your wife, your husband, your family, education, all of those are good. And you are meant to desire those things. But, if they were all taken away and all you had was your Bible, would you feel like you were given the short end of the stick? Or would you feel joy? A joy that cannot be taken away because of God and His Word. Now in verse 11, David comes back around to the effect. So we had the delay. Now we see the effect. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So in knowing the written revelation of God, knowing the Word of God, knowing your Bible, He warns you. He gives you warnings throughout your life. As we were saying, He leads you down the straight paths. He shows you in the ways that you should walk. And then He says, in keeping them there is great reward. Notice how the reward is in keeping the commandments of God. It's not that you're going to commit, uh, keep the commandments and then you're going to get this reward. Virtue is a reward in itself. Keeping the commandments of the Lord is a reward in itself. We were talking a moment ago about sanctification. Knowing the Word of God, being sanctified in the image of Christ. That is the reward and that's the highest reward. To be made like Jesus. To reign with Him in heaven to see His face. So don't be thinking that you're doing all of this for a certain type of end. You know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get something more. You may see, right now we live in faith. One day we will see in sight. So we will get something more. We will see the face of Christ. But in keeping the commandments is great reward. Virtue the virtue of a godly man, the virtue of a godly woman, the virtue of a godly child is a reward in itself. And then as we come to verse 12, David, as he usually does in most of his psalms, begins to reflect. He begins to reflect on his own heart, reflect on some of the things that he's been learning as he's been writing and pondering, meditating on God's Word, God Himself. He says, who can discern his errors? He's talking about himself here. He's saying, how can I discern my own errors? In comparison to the perfect Word of God, how can I discern the depths of my own sinfulness? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David is showing us how to be repentant. He is showing us how to pray and to ask for forgiveness. Every day you and I sin more and deeper than we can imagine. You may be able to look back over your day when you're praying to the Lord, confessing your sins. You may be able to see I told a lie, or I uh, 
spoke wrongly to my husband or my wife or to my children. I did something I wasn't supposed to do. Well, within that, sin goes so much deeper than you can know. And there are also sins that you may have committed not knowingly. Something you said or whatever. That's what David is saying. Who can discern his errors? And so he asked the Lord, declare me innocent from these hidden faults. And then he says, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins, outright sin, where you look at the Word of God and you do it anyway. He's saying, keep me back from those sins. And we know David committed sins like that. He slept with Bathsheba, killed her husband, tried to cover it up. Nathan the prophet confronted him. He confessed his sin. So David has experienced these things. He's saying, keep me back from these presumptuous sins. And then he says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then in verse 14, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you pray like that? Do you pray and ask that everything you say, everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel would be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Because every day we are confronted with the world and it's very easy to want to be acceptable in their sight, right? Whether it's at work, whether it's at home, or whatever you're doing, it is so easy to fold underneath the pressure of, I want them to like me. I want to get to lo- get along. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to have a bad week again. Because in standing up for God's Word, they're not going to like it. If I preach to them the Word of Christ and tell them what they don't want to hear, they're not going to like it. If I live like Christ... They're not going to like it. The world is going to see that and hatred is going to come up. Because as Jesus said, the world hated me first. And so it will hate you. The world hated the Lord Jesus first. And so it will hate us. But David's not concerned about those things. He's not concerned about putting on a front, being a certain person in front of the world and then in private devotions. Okay, in the world I will please them, but in my private devotions I'll please God. No, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight at all times, in all places, in all ways, in everything that I do. May they be acceptable to you in your sight. And then he concludes saying, O Lord, my rock, in my Redeemer. The words of God, the Bible, is the rock that we stand on. It is the firm foundation. Because in the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ is poured forth. In the Bible, you see and you become to know Jesus, who is our Lord 
our rock, and our redeemer. The song that we sing. When all around my soul gives way, then you alone are my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ poured forth in His Word is the solid rock. If you are trusting in yourself or in some revelation of the world, some world religion, you're standing on sinking sand. And one day it will give way and you will be consumed by it. But the Bible is the solid rock. So, as you go throughout your week, this week and next week and every other week, I want you to read your Bibles with what we just went over in your minds. Think to yourself. Bring it to your mind afresh. Kind of like we were talking about creation. As you walk out in creation, it's so easy to just become numb to it. You have a beautiful luscious green tree or grass before you. And you just walk over it or you walk by it. You never notice it. The greatest and the most beautiful sights in the world become numb. Think about the people who live next to these great sights. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they just kind of, yeah, first 15 times is pretty great, but now it's just, you know, that's my walk to work. I get to see something nice, but whatever. Don't let that happen to creation or to your Bible. Oh, let me come before God's Word this morning. You know, this book that is supposed to help me live the way I'm supposed to live and reveal God and the Lord Jesus Christ to me. I need to read it. Think about it. I get to wake up this morning. I get to read my Bible. And God Himself is going to speak to me. Again, you don't need some type of special vision. You don't need to be looking for certain truths that people come up with, something new, something fresh, they say. God's Word has everything that we need. Everything. Now, I'm just kind of ranting along, but please, please, please enjoy your Bibles. Rejoice in your Bible. God has given you His very words. This is His special revelation. You could pretty much look at this as God's letter to you. We often talk about if your loved one, your wife or your husband was to write a letter to you, you haven't seen them in a while or whatever it may be, you would be very excited to break that letter open and begin to read it, to smell that person, to imagine being with them because the letter's not enough. It makes you want more. That's the Bible. And that's how you should think about it whenever you read it. Father, as we come to a close in looking at Your Word and talking about it, I pray that we would go from here, not just today, but every day, rejoicing in the words that You have given us. They are beautiful words. They are delightful. They fill us with joy. They revive our souls. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. They are sweeter than a honey. Than drippings of the honeycomb. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they go out into the world. 
may you be preparing them and transforming them into the image of Christ in the sanctification of reading your word, of knowing your word and knowing you in it. And Father, I also ask that if there are people here that, and all of us do this at some point, struggle to read your word, look at it and just say to themselves, I don't feel like doing this. Father, bring to them afresh the marvelous wonders that are here for us to see. I pray that we would rejoice in the Word of God, that we would rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ who has made Himself known to us in His Word. Thank you for all that you do. And again, I ask you to be with us as another week comes to us. In Christ's name we ask and pray these things. Amen.